The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Selecting and Sequencing Targeted and Immunotherapy Regimens for RCC. How will the latest evidence impact treatment decisions for my patients? Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash XZJ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Okay, well, welcome everyone. We're going to be talking all about kidney cancer across lines of therapy. Uh, The title is Selecting and Sequencing Targeted Immunotherapy Regimens for Renal Cell Carcinoma. Um, We have several uh, panelists with us today, my dear friends Nazar Tanir and Tian Zhang. Um, And this is a general overview of what we want to discuss. So in broad strokes, we want to discuss treatment in the perioperative setting. There's obviously been a lot of changes there with the presentation and publication of data from Keynote 564. We'll talk about frontline therapy in the advanced setting and the merits of IOIO versus IOTKI. Subsequent line settings, which now becomes a bit of a controversial area, and we'll wrap up with some discussion of AE management. So first, I'll turn it over to Dr. Tanier, who's a mentor to, I would say, virtually everybody in the kidney cancer space across the country. He's a professor in the Department of Geomedical Oncology at MD Anderson. Uh, Dr. Tanier, uh, would you like to walk us through dual immunotherapy? Thank you, Monty, for the kind in- introduction, and thank you all for coming here. Um, first, before we get to this, uh, I would like to dedicate my presentation to a dear colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Christopher Wood, who unfortunately uh, passed uh, away this morning, uh, untimely death. He is a, uh, a giant in the field of urology and urological oncology, uh, a colleague, a mentor to so many, and he was a really tour de force here uh, with KCA, and we're here now because of his efforts. But his legacy will live on through the, all the people that he trained over the years at MD Anderson and all the, the lives that he, he touched uh, in the world uh, you know, operating on people with kidney cancer. So uh, we'll start with uh, an update on the results of Checkmate 214. This is uh, one of the largest phase three trials in first-line therapy of patients with advanced kidney cancer, clear cell. And uh, it's also the one with the longest follow-up. And here on the slide, you see the treatment uh, uh, schema. Uh, Patients with advanced clear cell RCC uh, were recruited to this trial in the first line, and they were... Uh, stratified by uh, IMDC risk score and uh, region. And you see here on the slide the uh, randomization one-to-one between the NEVO-EP at the uh, doses and schedule noted here versus Sinitrip at the standard dose and schedule. There were uh, the primary endpoints for this uh, uh, phase three trial, the checkmate 214, were uh, three co-primary endpoints with PFS, OS, and objective response rate in patients with intermediate or, uh, and poor risk disease, secondary endpoint PFS-OS and ORR in the ITT, and then the exploratory PFS-OS and ORR in the favorable risk disease. Uh, and here on this slide now is the uh, results for OS and PFS at the different milestones uh, for the study. Uh, in the first column, you see the minimum follow-up, 17.5 months. Is what, that's when we first presented the data in September 2017 and the publication in the New England Journal of Medicine in uh, March 2018, and then 30 months minimum follow-up and 42 months, and then the little 148 months minimum follow-up. And as you can see here, uh, the uh, results are showing that there is improvement in OS for intermediate risk, poor risk, 
and you can see the hazard ratio has really remained uh, about similar here, constant here, around 0 0.63 through 0 0.65 across you know, the, the time the, uh, the time points here. And then here for PFS, although the, uh, the uh, difference between uh, the two treatment arms did not uh, meet the uh, statistical significance as pre-specified in the trial, but you can see the hazard ratio here has improved over time to 0 0.74. And you'll see later how this translates to uh, uh, the landmark analysis where we can see the results actually are even uh, more impressive. So the value of uh, giving uh, dual immune checkpoint inhibitors as first-line therapy with a pd one blockade with nivolumab and a CTA4 blockade with ipilimumab is in addition to OS, which is obviously the most important endpoint for any trial for patients with cancer, is the opportunity to have a treatment-free uh, uh, interval. And this is what you get with AP. And here are uh, on these two uh, panels, patients who achieved CR with nevo-IPI, and here are patients who had intermediate risk, poor risk, and you see here, uh, this is a swimmer's plot look, showing uh, individual patients here across time, and the open circles are the, the time to uh, first response. The uh, dark uh, black circles are the ones that had event and the time of that, and then the arrowhead are ongoing responses. And in the top panel here on the left, you see patients who are still on treatment with nevo-IPI and then later on uh, maintenance nivolumab. And here are patients. And you can see here the important thing to, pr to show here are these uh, long bars here, uh, dark and blue bars, uh, patients who, uh, had, who were able to stop therapy. These are patients here who achieved the CR and uh, were off therapy and did not require and continue to have response. And here, the same thing here for patients with favorable risk, and you can see here in those, among those 16 complete responders, again, here are patients who uh, were able to stop therapy and never received subsequent therapy. And here are a couple of my curves for OS, and this is now data uh, with five-year minimum follow-up. This was presented at ESMO, and you can see here for uh, the first panel here, the patients with intent to treat, and here are the, this is the population with intermediate risk, poor risk, and here a favorable risk. And as you can see here for, for OS, there is a significant difference between the two treatment arms. And you can see here now that after minimum five years of follow-up, Nevo-AP uh, produced a median OS of 56 months versus 38.4 months median OS with sunitinib, and this has a hazard ratio of 0 0.72, so that's a significant difference. And for the intermediate risk, poor risk, as you saw initially on the table, the median OS for sunitinib is constant at around 26 months, and here is the median OS for nevo-AP for patients with intermediate risk being around four years. And you can see here, the, at five years, the, the, the landmark analysis is 43% in patients with intermediate risk, poor risk, uh, uh, are alive versus 31%. And for the favorable risk, as you will see later on from Dr. Powell's presentation, for favorable risk, the combinations of uh, nevo-IPI or, as you will see with uh, uh, the pd one antibodies plus a TKI, for that favorable risk, there is inconclusive uh, uh, evidence to, to show survival advantage for a, a combination uh, versus uh, the uh, single-agent TKI. However, as I'll show you later, there is now uh, data to show that even among the favorable risk patients, there is benefit over time for the experimental arm here of nevo -IP. 
And so this is the same couple of markers for PFS. And then here we're looking at probabilities and landmark analysis. Again, at that five-year uh, minimum follow-up here. And you can see for the ITT as well as intermediate pool risk, there is around 30-30%, 30 30-31% of progression-free survival. You see here there is a, a, almost a flattening or a tail or shoulder at the end of the curve here for the nevo-epi uh, treated patients compared to sinitinib arm, which continues to drop to the x-axis. And you can see here the difference uh, between the two treatment arms vis-a-vis -vis, uh, uh, PFS uh, at this five-year uh, landmark analysis. And you can see here for favorable risk, even though the sunitinib arm had uh, a longer PFS of medium 28.9 months versus 12.4 months with nevo-epi, and had, we know that the patients here had a 52% response rate versus a response rate of 30% with nevo-epi. Uh, at five years, there's a higher proportion of patients who, have, who are progression-free with nevo-epi compared to sunitinib. And you'll see now the responses on the next slide here. Uh, with a minimum five-year follow-up. And you can see that uh, for intermediate risk, poor risk, and ITT, the response rate is around 40% for nevo-epi versus, uh, you know, 32% here in the ITT, 27% in intermediate risk. For favorable risk, the response rate with sunitinib is 52%, but this is, draw your attention to the important CR rate, which is really a, a goal for us to achieve hopefully a durable CR and uh, break the cure barrier, uh, the CR rate is important. And here for the ITT, 12% versus 3%, 11 versus 2% for intermediate risk poor risk. Even in that favorable risk category, the CR rate with NIVAP was 13% versus 6% with sunitinib. So I think here this is the, the important here in the green box here that a higher proportion of patients achieve CR with NIVAP uh, versus sunitinib regardless of risk. And more patients achieved, and you can see it here at the bottom, ongoing responses, a higher proportion of patients with nevo-epi had, uh, you know, CRPRs that's ongoing compared to uh, sunitinib. And the median duration of response was notably higher with nevo-epi, as you can see here, versus sunitinib, uh, even in patients with favorable risk. Now, what about, you know, uh, treatment-related adverse events? I think it's important to recognize that nevo-epi can produce uh, immune-mediated adverse events, but these are usually, uh, they occur in the first six months of therapy, and over time, the, these uh, decrease, uh, including the grade uh, three and four and grade, uh, you know, the grade one and two uh, uh, over time. So safety here at five-year minimum follow-up uh, shows that uh, nevo-epi, uh, uh, the safety is consistent with no new signals of safety over time, uh, and the, the comparable rates of treatment rate AEs of any grade occurred uh, comparably uh, for, for both treatment arms, but the grade three and four treatment-related AEs were lower, 48% with nevo-epi versus 64%. And then the quality of life benefits, uh, I think, uh, will continue to favor the combination of nevo-epi compared to sinitinib in patients with intermediate risk and poor risk, as well as the uh, overall population. So the take-home message here for dual immunotherapy as first-line therapy for patients with advanced D-cell RCC is that with a minimum uh, five-year follow-up, and this is the longest follow-up of any phase three trial in first-line therapy, Checkmate 214 continues to 
to uh, produce uh, benefits uh, and resulting in durable responses uh, across all IMD risk uh, groups. Uh, there is a potential, as I showed you, for treatment-free interval, which is really important for patients, and the toxicity is highest uh, in the first three, first three to six months. We saw that even in patients who have favorable risk, there is a higher proportion of patients who are alive with minimum five years with nivolumab versus uh, with sunitinib. So this is a patient of mine that I had the privilege of uh, treating uh, several years ago. She came to MD Anderson. This is a 53-year-old 53, 53 Caucasian uh, woman who presented with increasing fatigue uh, associated with dyspnea, cough, and had a palpable right flank mass. And her past history was uh, uh, contributing for psoriasis, which was uh, minimal and managed. And evaluation showed uh, on CAT scans a 10-centimeter mass in the right kidney with IVC tumor thrombus involving the right renal sinus and calicele system. She had scattered pulmonary nodules consistent with lung metastasis and also a clustered left supraclavicular lymph adenopathy suspicious for metastatic disease. She underwent a right radical nephrectomy and IVC thrombectomy, and the pathology showed a 12.5 centimeters clear cell renal carcinoma with extension into perinephric adipose tissue, renal sinus, renal, renal vein, and the IVC. And this uh, puts her at stage with PT3C and 0MX, so stage 3 disease. But she had metastasis already to the lungs and lymph nodes, so she had stage 4 disease. And six weeks post-operatively, uh, she had new and enlarging bilateral pulmonary nodules and liver metastasis. Her lab work uh, showed anemia, but otherwise was normal. So she had, by IMDC criteria, she had intermediate risk disease with two risk factors. Here is her scan to, on your left here. The scan at baseline we obtained, she had liver metastasis, as you can see, pointed in the green arrow, and she had also lung metastasis noted. So... She, uh, and we enrolled her on the Checkmate 214 study back in uh, July of 2015, and she was uh, luckily randomized to nivolumab and pilumab. She developed uh, acute thyroiditis after the first cycle, but tolerated it very well otherwise. And uh, after her second cycle, she developed pneumonitis and was uh, hospitalized and was treated with high-dose corticosteroids, and we were able to taper as an outpatient with prednisone and we were able to, to discontinue the prednisone, and we were able to give her a third cycle. And, and uh, unfortunately, after the third cycle, she developed again pneumonitis, and she, this time she also had acute hepatitis with elevated serum transaminases, as you can see here, the numbers. And so we again uh, restarted her with uh, high-dose corticosteroids, and uh, she was able to uh, be discharged and tapered her prednisone over six weeks, and she has completely uh, responded to steroids with resolution of her pneumonitis and hepatitis. We'll have a chance. I think uh, Dr. Powell will go over some of the management of adverse events uh, associated, you know, like we call them immune-mediated adverse events associated with this therapy, which is very important for the practitioner. But we decided after three cycles to stop the uh, uh, treatment, and she was taken off protocol treatment, and that's all she had, three cycles of nevoepi. Again, to illustrate the point I made uh, in my presentation about the value of uh, 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 producing treatment-free interval. So that's all she had for treatment, 
only nine weeks of therapy with nivolumab, and she remains uh, in complete response six years later. And here are her scans now. Answers back on that, Nizar. Let me ask you a question: How have your colleagues in the community uh, evolved in terms of managing IRAEs? You know, this is a complex case. You know, I think it's quite fortunate that she was under your watch, and you know, I think it must have been a difficult decision to give that third dose of nevolumab given her pneumonitis. You know, are you seeing that practitioners in the community are learning how to manage these toxicities and bringing patients in in an appropriate time frame? Yeah, I think uh, you know, obviously, it's a learning curve. Initially, even us in, at academic centers, when we first. Uh, you know, designed the, the NEVO-EPI, the Checkmate 214 trial uh, with uh, the four cycles of NEVO-EPI, uh, followed by maintenance and uh, the uh, complexity of management of these patients with IMAEs. You know, it takes time to really uh, acquire the skills. And I think what we have done here at MD Anderson is, uh, you know, and this is a while back now, we, uh, it's very important to communicate with patients directly, have your nursing staff uh, uh, and the physicians communicating with the patient. And I think, you know, this also applies to the, for people, uh, the community oncologists, to really uh, be in touch and follow up when you give them the treatment, follow up with the patients. And so we have at MD Anderson now an app uh, where we uh, have alerts directly sent to us in real time to uh, the, the treating team, myself and my PA and our nurse, uh, where we respond quickly uh, to what they experience. I think this is why it's important to really know in real time quickly if the patient is in trouble and get them to come uh, when they have still grade one or grade two adverse events rather, uh, rather than wait and then they end up in a local emergency room with uh, a grade three and four and they get hospitalized and get sick. So I think it's important really timing, early timing, recognition uh, of the post- the, the adverse events and initiation of strategies to mitigate the adverse events and, and quickly, like we said, high-dose steroids here is really important. Um, so we're going to uh, jump forward here to other options that patients have in 2021 now, because certainly this is an evolving landscape. So I'm going to jump into a synopsis of all the TKI and IO combinations that are available in this setting. And, you know, rather than showing you each one of the schemas, we only have an hour to go through everything. I'm going to sort of generalize here. And, you know, although we can't do cross-trial comparisons, the designs of these studies lend themselves to at least some degree of comparability because they all utilize the same sinitinib control arm that was used in Checkmate 214. You can see a TKI plus IO used in the experimental arm, albeit at varying doses and different strategies. So let's go through these together. Um, So this is the Keynote 426 study. Again, just a quick overview of the study design and data, axitinib and pembrolizumab versus sinitinib therapy. And uh, if I can highlight some of the data here, what you can see um, in the context of axipembro is a survival advantage over um, sinitinib therapy. This hazard ratio has actually evolved over the course of time. So to Nazar's point, in the context of nevoipi, you've actually seen a fairly consistent hazard ratio over time. With axipembro, it's actually increased from the time of initial presentation from really kind of a microphone dropping 0.53 to 0.73 in this study. Um, the difference in progression-free survival, I mean, everybody has a different perspective on this. And I thought this was quite modest, 11 months versus 15 months. But this is where the data sits currently. In terms of response rates, this is really, I think, one of the benefits that one might argue with the combination of TKI-IO versus um, IO-IO. The response rate overall at 60% is higher. 
the CR rate 10% with this particular regimen, and that actually has increased over the span of time. And this has the longest follow-up out of any series to date of TKI plus IO here. So reflecting on our schema once again, um, one of the other um, elements that we can discuss in the context of this trial is some of the discontinuation data. A big question, not just in the context of Nevo-Ipi, but in these emerging TKI-IO combinations is when you can actually withdraw treatment. And so this was data that Betsy Plimick presented at ASCO-GU um, not long ago, and this reflects patients that have discontinued therapy with pembrolizumab at the two-year mark. And you can see that there are very few events occurring in terms of survival on the left-hand panel. Um, a modest number of events occurring in terms of progression-free survival on the right-hand panel here. So, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know what to do in that particular setting. I take this data suggesting that that may be a reasonable option. Again, we're really going to do sort of a highlight of the existing data. This is a data set that I actually usually lean on in my day-to-day -day practice, and that's Checkmate 9ER. So this evaluates the combination of cabozantinib and nivolumab versus sinitinib therapy. Um, as you look to the data for overall survival, the hazard ratio in this study was 0 0.6. Median progression-free survival doubled here from 8.3 to 16.6. One of the things that isn't emphasized on this slide is the dosing regimen that's used. So many of us in the room are familiar with using cabozantinib in the second and third line setting at 60 milligrams. Uh, I think the investigators associated with this study, I, I wasn't one of them, uh, made a very wise decision to actually bring that dose down from 60 milligrams to 40 milligrams. In my opinion, I think that makes this regimen leaps and bounds more tolerable. In terms of response rates, you know, you can see some comparability here, 55.7% versus 27.1%. These numbers are not strikingly different from uh, the data that you saw with Axipembro, but again, I think a more impressive difference in terms of progression-free survival. Uh, with more extended follow-up and the intention-to-treat population, you can see these numbers uh, holding to a greater extent. Progression-free survival hazard ratio here, 0 0.52. For overall survival, numbers holding at 0.66. Um, so I would say that, you know, clear separation between the curves. Clearly, you know, this is an effective regimen. Now, this is a regimen that, in my opinion, is maybe a little bit more controversial. Um, you know, the data here is impressive when you look at this combination of Len-Pembro, which was compared to Sinitinib, as well as Len-Ev in the context of the CLEAR trial. You see here a response rate that's, that's double with the combination of Len-Pembro, 36% versus 71%. CR rates here impressive, you know, approaching 16% uh, in patients receiving the combination of Lenbatinib and Pembrolizumab. And a striking difference in terms of progression-free survival with a PFS of 23.9 months versus 9.2 months with sinitinib. Um, so impressive data, but one thing that's important to point out here is that those of you in the audience treating renal cell carcinoma have gotten used to this dose of lindatinib at 18 milligrams in the second-line setting. You know, I've tinkered around with different dosing strategies. Uh, in the context of the CLEAR study, that dose has actually increased to 20 milligrams. Um, so I certainly think that issues of tolerability might rise to the fore, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. Um, pembrolizumab and lenvatinib did demonstrate a significant improvement in overall survival as well. This is reflecting a hazard ratio of 0.66 here. Um, I'm not too concerned about this crossover that you see in the curves. There's very few events reflected at these late time points here. I did want to 
harp in on this issue of dosing and tolerability and the impact that it may potentially have in terms of quality of life. Um, again, quality of life data is, is challenging to interpret. Across all these studies, you're looking at different metrics. There's different time points that are being assessed. But just to make the point between the two regimens that I think have come to the fore more recently, Checkmate 9ER and CLEAR, in the analyses from the CLEAR trial, you can see that there's no difference across at least some of the metrics that have been reported thus far. There have been some further dissections of that, as you can see in this forest plot down here. Maybe some symptoms that are improving, others worsening in the context of this combo. To me, my interpretation of the Checkmate 9ER quality of life data was more clear-cut. You know, across time, across the uh, uh, landmarks assessed, and across the different scales, you see that there is improvement in broad terms with cabo-nevo versus sinitinib therapy. So we're going to change up the discussion a little bit here. What if she'd elected to pursue therapy with an IOTKI combination? How can we counsel this patient to really help with this discussion um, around these different treatment options? Certainly this entails some conversation around risk status, quality of life goals. Now, Tian, maybe I'll turn it over to you for a second. How do you walk that patient through the discussion of IOIO versus IOTKI? You know, uh, when this type of patient comes into my practice, and uh, I always talk about all of our treatment options together and give them all the options. And I, I think um, really helping them make a shared decision um, with the oncologist is very important. Um, and in talking about all the studies, I, I tell them none of these trials have really been compared head to head. So as we're looking for an immunotherapy-based combination, uh, and really talking about goals. Are we looking at really trying to intensify a pure immunotherapy combination up front and then, you know, a maintenance nivolumab sort of on its own, um, perhaps less toxicity in that, that setting? Uh, or are we looking for early disease control, right? Um, uh, one of the differentiators, I think, of the IOTKI combinations is that we can really do um, have some earlier uh, disease control and um, better progression-free survival intervals up front. And so that, that's a differentiator in my mind and um, what I would help that patient talk through. And, and their quality of life, um, you know, I, I have a hesitation to really delve deep into quality of life um, especially because, you know, when a severe immune-mediated adverse events um, hits, this can really um, change how a patients um, feel uh, chronically on, in, in their lifespan. So um, that's hard. And, and then from a, a, a cohort's perspective of comparing uh, the treatments on their own uh, for populations versus talking about it to the patient in front of us, right? So um, from that perspective, I, I will talk through, you know, these are the side effects, here are how we manage, um, and we'll get you through. I, I really um, I thought Nazar's point earlier was um, quite valid in terms of getting patients to understand the treatment toxicities early, identifying them, and then helping them advocate um, in an earlier setting to get the right management. So, Nizar, excellent, Tian. Thank you for that. And there's a, a very interesting question that came in from the audience here. And, Nizar, I'm going to direct this one towards you, and I'll just kind of start with my perspective on it. You know, I'm primarily using Cabonevo in my practice. I've had several colleagues in the community uh, uh, using LenEv, but taking the approach of actually modifying that starting dose. So instead of starting with 20, starting with 12, starting with 14, starting with 10, you know, my perspective on that is we don't really know what benefit that's rendering to the patient. I mean, what is your advice in that context? Uh, I agree. I think if you're going to start uh, Pembrolen, 
the dose of lanyard you should uh, that we should prescribe is 20 milligram. I mean, obviously, this is the data from the clear study. Uh, if you make the decision to start Pembrolan, you believe that the patient is going to tolerate it. I think you should start it with the 20 milligram. And I look at it as, you know, a loading dose. I, I think you, you can start with a 20 milligram. And if the patient a month later uh, is not tolerating the 20 milligram, then you can give them, uh, uh, you can interrupt and dose reduce to 14. But you can start, you should start all your patients on 20. I don't think we have data to, to really predict what will the response and the benefit be if you start with 12 or 14, as you said. So I would start with 20. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So I, I think that, you know, again, if you're going to put that patient on frontline therapy, you know, you're really sort of committed yourself to trying to replicate to at least some extent the data that we're seeing in these phase three trials that we presented, you know, so sticking to that starting dose is, is really key. I have a lot more flexibility in the second and third line setting. Maybe we can chat more about that. Um, I wanted to shift gears and actually talk about this slide that we have up here. And, you know, this is up here for your perusal uh, for the audience. But I wanted to kind of talk through how you differentiate toxicities. And, and so, Nazar, you know, let's imagine for a second that patient that you presented, you know, was not on Nevo-Ipi, but developed autoimmune hepatitis in the context of, let's say, Axipembro. How would you kind of differentiate what's driving the hepatitis there? I think, you know, uh, the good thing about Axie, it's, it has a short half-life of four hours. So if they have uh, any toxicity that is like you, you show here in your Venn diagram with an overlapping toxicity, whether it's diarrhea, fatigue, you can, uh, or uh, elevated liver function test, you stop the TKI. Uh, and then if uh, in a few days the uh, adverse event uh, uh, in question improves, then it's the TKI most likely. If it doesn't, then I think uh, definitely the patient uh, uh, will need to be treated with, uh, you know, steroids. So obviously it all depends on the severity. Now, obviously if somebody comes in with 15 bowel movements, this is immune, uh, this is immune uh, related colitis and that they need to be hospitalized for supportive care. And then at MD Anderson, we would get a colonoscopy on these patients. Of course, we get stool studies. We get colonoscopy and biopsies. And if we see immune-related colitis with lymphocytic infiltrates, we start steroids uh, right there. So I think it depends on the severity. Uh, but I think this is where, uh, you know, maybe a, an agent that has a short half-life gives you that, uh, you know, uh, day or two to really figure out if it is the TKI. And this is where I think axitinib. Uh, compared to other uh, TKIs, has a shorter half-life, and you can quickly respond to that situation. Got it. And, and Tian, I'm going to ask you the same question, but maybe in the context of Cabo-Nevo, where you don't necessarily have that you know, advantage of the short half-life. Um, and for, for those in the audience, Tian is the national PI on the pedigree study. I'm hoping we'll be able to touch on that today, but it's a trial that looks at Nevo-Ipi up front and uses sort of a risk-adapted approach to utilize uh, CABO as an adjunct to maintenance NEVO for selected patients. So, you know, in that setting, Tian, let's say, you know, you had Nazar's patient who developed autoimmune hepatitis 1 CABO NEVO. How do you sort of tease apart the toxicities there? Yeah, thanks, Monty. I, I, I appreciate the plug for pedigree. We'll talk about it here shortly. Um, but, you know, uh, 
for cabozantinib, where the half-life is quite longer um, than exitinib, I would still stop it first. You know, I think the sort of same management, because we can stop the, the daily treatments, but we can't stop, you know, an immune-mediated effect um, as, as quickly as just holding drug um, with an oral TKI. So um, certainly stopping cabo early and then sort of monitoring um, we've been doing this on pedigree for quite a while um, and really kind of monitoring that patient through the first three to four days. If the diarrhea is not improving, um, that's when we would advise the sites to go ahead and start their steroids. Uh, generally, these are, uh, and the hepatitis, if the liver functions are not improving, then we would start the steroids. So generally, uh, we can tease out which uh, of the drugs is uh, at fault here, but uh, certainly jumping on um, uh, stopping the TKI first, then um, uh, adding on the steroid um, in the correct context, um, as long as the patient's stable. Um, I fully agree if a patient's unstable, then they, they should be um, hospitalized, we should start the uh, downstream management quickly. Excellent. Well, I've left this slide up on the screen just for your perusal. I think this offers a nice summary of some of the frontline data sets that Nazar and I have outlined here. You know, and I think Nazar made a compelling case for the data for Nevo Ipi from Checkmate 214. My frontline preference these days is Cabo Nevo based on some of the quality of life data that I showed you based on my experience, you know, using the, the Cabo 40 dose response rate, et cetera. I think that a, a reasonable case can be made for several of these therapies, but I think one of the tenets that we've highlighted is, you know, know how to manage the toxicities and also you know, stick to those starting doses if you're using um, any one of these combinations. So, so uh, Tian, maybe you can give us a little update on pedigree. How's, how are things going while we're getting feedback on this question? Sure. We're about halfway accrued, um, and it's going strong. Thanks from many of the investigators around the country, some of whom are sitting in this room. Um, but we are, um, you know, very positive about it, and uh, it is only, I'll, I'll show here shortly, but it is one of the only um, phase three frontline trials currently accruing. I, I was going to echo that sentiment. I think it's one of those studies we can all get behind while we have this pause uh, amongst many of the frontline studies out there. So what about the refractory setting? I'm just going to kind of keep the dialogue going here and talk through a couple of different options. So this particular patient that Nizar had gone through progresses through frontline therapy, um, she responds uh, with mild adverse events uh, to Nevo Ipi. At 12 months, she has a new pulmonary nodule. She switches over to therapy with cabozantinib. She tolerates it well for a period of time. Disease remains stable for about nine months. And then uh, she has a new liver lesion, so cabozantinib is discontinued. Um, so this is the data that I was referring to earlier. You know, I, my clinical experience, you know, suggests that linvatinib is one of those regimens that can be, you know, a, a challenging in terms of toxicity management. So, you know, one of the trials I was very interested in running was this one here, which looked at linvatinib 18 versus linvatinib 14 with everolimus. And th this took patients who were in the second-line setting. And, and one of the things that you see here is that this was a non-inferiority study. Uh, one of the things that we deemed from this analysis, which was based on response rate, not what we're showing here, which is PFS and OS, is that the linvatinib 14 regimen was not non-inferior. Um, so that means that, you know, the suggestion from the study was to stick with linvatinib 18. And you can kind of see that. I picked this slide because you can see that reflected here to some extent. You can see the linvatinib 18 milligram dose sort of edging out the linvatinib 14 milligram dose in terms of progression-free survival. In terms of overall survival, it looks to be fairly balanced. So linvatinib and everolimus is an option that we've had at our disposal for some time. It's something that I still use in the salvage setting. 
This is a data set that I think we really need to focus on communicating to our partners in the community. Um, you know, there's a lot of TKIs already out there for renal cell carcinoma. Uh, this is a, a, a new kid on the block, but one that I think is highly effective in the refractory setting. And this trial, TiVo3, which I was really proud to be a part of, you know, really does reflect an effort um, that represents a, a pathway that's specific to patients who have progressed on TKI and IO-based therapies. Um, so the study schema, as you can see here, took patients who had failure of two to three prior regimens. Patients were randomized to divositive, which is given at 1.5 milligrams oral daily, uh, three weeks on, one week off, or uh, therapy with serafinib. Um, and what you see in the context of this study is a significant advantage in terms of progression-free survival. We're uh, showing you some of the updates here with a response rate of 23%. Uh, with tavazinib versus just 11% with serafinib. And, you know, Nazar was pointing out some tails on the curve for the Checkmate 214 data. Smaller numbers here, I'll confess, but, you know, I am seeing, you know, sort of a striking distance at, uh, between the curves at some of these distal time points, which I think is quite encouraging. Now, if you think about the mechanism of action of tavazinib, it's a very potent, specific VEGF inhibitor. Um, so, for instance, in my patient population where I'm using cabonevo up front, I'm using that sort of multi-kinase approach in the frontline setting. I think it maybe makes sense to hone in with an agent like tavazinib. Many have asked, well, is this actually different from axitinib, an agent that we've had in the second and third line setting for some time? And, you know, one of the things that you see represented here is this very nice analysis that Brian uh, Rini presented at ASCO-GU this year, and it distills the fact that in patients that have previously received uh, axitinib therapy in the context of TiVo3, there's still an advantage with tavazinib over serafinib. You wouldn't have expected that if these agents were completely identical. So I think there's certainly some distinctions between TiVo and Axi. And this really drives home the point that tavazinib is a very well-tolerated therapy. I think it's reflected in the volcano plot that you see at the bottom. When you look at some of the relevant side effects in this patient population, diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, nausea, vomiting, rash, et cetera, you know, and this was my experience participating in the clinical trial as well, saw that far less with tavazinib uh, than with serafinib. The table on the right-hand side articulates rates of dose reduction, better with tavazinib, dose interruptions, dose continuations, both better with tavazinib. So a really strong argument suggesting that in this salvage setting, you know, tavazinib really should kind of move to the fore as one of our preferred therapies. And there is some emerging data that I want you all to consider regarding the combination approach. Uh, the data from the combination of tavazinib and nivolumab looks quite compelling. I won't dive into the details, but I'll leave this uh, slide up here for you. And critical that we all consider enrollment to TNEVO2, which is a study that I think really addresses an area of unmet need, which is going to take patients who have received prior um, immunotherapy and randomize them to either tavazinib or tavazinib and nivolumab. This is another new kid on the block. It's probably a little too early uh, to talk about this agent in a clinical context for RCC, although it has applications in diseases like VHL syndrome. But this is Belzotifan, and this is data from a single-arm study uh, that was just published in Nature Medicine not long ago. And what you can see with Belzotifan in a fairly heavily pretreated population is uh, an impressive response rate of 25%. Um, median progression-free survival, 14.5 months. This waterfall plot seems to be getting a bit better over the course of time. You're seeing these responses deepen, which I think is the nature of the drug. Um, but it'll be interesting to follow this along. And I'm going to turn it over to my dear friend, Tian Zhang, who is an associate professor at UT Southwestern. Just made that transition from Duke. 
Thanks so much, Monty, and uh, welcome to Texas, everyone. Um, so uh, happy to switch gears a little bit and think about sort of what's next on our landscape for kidney cancer. Um, so wanted to uh, switch gears and talk a little bit about the adjuvant setting and um, permit me just to sort of think about the adjuvant setting for a moment. Um, Post-surgery, your patient has had their nephrectomy and you're thinking about what to do next um, and then the space. We're really thinking a lot about balancing risk and benefit ratios and how much your treatment is adding. Um, and so certainly benefits could be that we're preventing disease recurrence and prolonging overall survival potentially, but the risk of treatment and when a, a, a treatment has a high um, uh, adverse event profile, um, then we're thinking a lot about the toxicities in that setting, the cost implications of the treatment and any inconveniences of the treatment. So um, instead of showing you all the data that we've had um, for the TKIs um, in, in the past uh, decade or so uh, in the adjuvant setting suffice um, for me to sum it up in this particular slide in, in terms of thinking about that risk-benefit ratio for adjuvant sunitinib, which we had uh, approved um, about four years ago. And so for sunitinib, uh, for a lot of us, and many of you in the audience um, are, are thinking about this in the adjuvant space, the toxicities of a year of sunitinib um, often outweigh the potential benefit of extending disease-free um, survival uh, to high intervals. And so when, uh, when and if it was recommended, uh, sunitinib was often for patients who are younger, who are maybe um, at a higher anxiety about their disease recurrence. Um, so in that setting, we have uh, multiple phase three adjuvant trials now with immune checkpoint inhibitors, um, many of which are currently ongoing, um, so that including Prosper, Rampart, Checkmate 914, um, as well as Emotion 010, uh, and then Keynote 564, which um, we saw the data for um, in the past year. So high-level look at Keynote 564. Um, this was an adjuvant study, phase three, uh, randomizing patients to either treatment with pembrolizumab or placebo. And we did see an improvement in disease-free survival intervals, here shown on the left, um, with an improvement um, of uh, uh, median disease-free intervals um, for pembrolizumab here um, uh, with a hazard ratio of 0.68. And this was a two-year follow, uh, median follow-up. Now, we did not see a statistically significant improvement in uh, overall survival here on the right, uh, but certainly a trend toward um, improvement. You can see a little bit of daylight starting to happen um, here at the two-year mark. And so um, certainly in this, in this context, um, we're seeing uh, disease-free survival benefit for pembrolizumab over placebo. And so thinking through, um, and there is a PADUFA date on this um, around December 10th, um, so about a month from now, um, we're seeing um, uh, lower levels of grade three or higher toxicities. Um, we are seeing uh, improvement in disease-free survival rates um, and then potential extend um, for overall survival, uh, although that data is not quite mature yet. Um, I think on the, on the risk side, we are still thinking about severe toxicities can be life-threatening, um, and then there's a cost to patient and payers as well as the IV treatments every three or six weeks, so your patients are coming in a little bit more than they would otherwise. Um, but certainly um, things to take into account when we're thinking through uh, whether uh, pembrolizumab is the right treatment uh, for your patient, and certainly depends on their patient preferences and priorities and goals for treatment. 
All right, I wanted to um, kind of take you through a couple of other studies that are currently ongoing. Um, this is the Checkmate 914 study, which is also in the adjuvant setting, um, randomizing uh, patients with high-risk uh, resected renal cell carcinoma to either nivolumab with ipilimumab or placebo. Um, and there's a third cohort as well being treated with nivolumab monotherapy. This PROSPER has been a a trial that's uh, been accruing in the cooperative groups for um, several years now. Um, It recently finished accruing, um, and so it's a a highly anticipated, uh, I would say, trial phase three, um, randomizing patients um, to either an upfront um, dose of nivolumab followed by uh, nephrectomy and then adjuvant uh, nivolumab maintenance for uh, about a year, or um, nephrectomy alone without um, perioperative treatment. And so I think we are all um, anticipating uh, the results of PROSPER, um, but uh, pending uh, enough follow-up, I would would hope in the next uh, few years we'll have that data. All right, and then uh, thinking through um, multiple trials um, are ongoing in the neoadjuvant setting, and this is where we're taking um, uh, really promising strategies, um, either with TKIs or TKI-IO combinations, and moving them uh, more in the upfront setting, um, even pre-nephrectomy settings. And so all of these are phase two trials ongoing um, of either a TKI um, on its own or a TKI with um, immunotherapy combination. Um, most of these are uh, either single or, or two or three centers and um, uh, less than 40 or so patients. All right, what are our ongoing studies in advance RCC? And this is where uh, Monty was highlighting um, our, our combinations with novel therapies, first-line treatment selection, and evolving trial designs um, to try to uh, optimize our comparator cohorts and, and think about um, the standard of care immunotherapy-based treatments uh, as we go forward. Um, so similar to what Monty showed you earlier, um, the, these are sort of next-generation first-line trial designs. Um, I like to call them Um, And all of these treatments um, are randomized against an immunotherapy-based cohort here uh, that we show you in the orange. Um, And all of these trials um, are currently ongoing. Um, The only one that's completed right now is the the COSMIC-313, which is a triplet with ibilimumab, nivolumab, and cabozantinib. Um, We talked a little bit earlier about pedigree. It's more of an adaptive design based on three-month responses, but randomizing patients to either nivolumab or nivolumab with cabozantinib. There is a triplet study um, based on the CLEAR trial, uh, lenvatinib with pembrolizumab, um, but adding belzutifen in uh, that triplet. And then finally, um, in the cooperative groups, the PROBE trial is uh, looking specifically at the question of consolidative nephrectomy. All of these questions, I think, are uh, apt and uh, really timely to think through um, as we get into these next-generation trials. For the pedigree study, I, I mentioned we're um, taking patients um, and, and treating all patients up front with IPI and NEVO, so building off of the Checkmate 214 data that we saw a five-year follow-up for. Um, and in terms of patients' responses, so adapting treatment to their three-month responses, anyone with uh, non-progressive disease or non-complete responses will be either randomized to nivolumab with cabozantinib or nivolumab alone. Uh, And this is the study that is uh, currently uh, ongoing. Um, It's about halfway accrued um, across the the country and uh, in large part uh, thanks to investigators around the country. Um, And so, whoops. 
this is the next study that we wanted to highlight. This is the um, triplet that I uh, that is really building on what we've learned from uh, the CLEAR trial, so lenvatinib, pembrolizumab, and belzutifen added in, um, versus pembrolizumab and uh, lenvatinib as the doublet. Um, and then there is a, a, a novel, the Merck's um, uh, CTLA-4 inhibitor, in addition uh, to pembrolizumab and lenvatinib. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll see how much the, the CTLA-4 inhibition is adding versus um, how much the HIV-2-alpha inhibition is adding in this upfront setting. The COSMIC-313 um, just finished accrual earlier this year, and it is looking at the combination of the triplet of cabozantinib, nivolumab, and ipilimumab versus nivolumab and ipilimumab. So how much does that uh, cabozantinib uh, add early on? And then finally, probe um, is the question of whether consolidative radi- nephrectomy um, at the timing of it. Uh, so everyone on this study, and it's a cooperative group trial that I, I think we're all very interested in, um, uh, run out of the SWOG um, cooperative group, but uh, everyone is started on an immunotherapy-based combination and then uh, randomized to receiving consolidative nephrectomy or, or continuing their systemic therapy. Lots of interesting questions that will um, uh, will answer with this and also uh, have a lot of uh, tissue um, to be collected with the consolidated nephrectomy that I think will answer a lot of biology um, uh, questions of who is responding versus who is not. All right, um, uh, we, we hearken back a little bit on um, the IL-2 pathway um, and thinking about um, uh, the IL, high-dose IL-2 days when uh, we, we saw some patients with uh, very long uh, tails of the curve, if you will, um, pa- patients who were uh, treated and, and cured um, with a very highly toxic treatment. So can we make IL-2 easier to tolerate? So um, we saw the, the data from PIVOT-02, which was is a pegylated form of IL-2 uh, called Bempegaldus-Lucan um, with nivolumab in combination, and we saw an objective response rate of 71% in the first-line setting. So PIVOT-09 um, also just finished accrual. This was a phase three study that randomized patients um, with advanced renal cell carcinoma uh, to either nivolumab with Bempegaldus-Lucan or um, the investigator's choice of either a sunitinib or cabozantinib. So I'm personally looking forward to uh, seeing uh, what the benefit of adding the pegylated form of IL-2 is doing in this particular setting. All right, some thoughts around challenges as we think through immunotherapy resistance and sequencing. We're talking about what's next and how do we sequence our treatments now that we have multiple active treatment combinations. And I think it really depends on the patient in front of us and and the timing of their resistance. We certainly have many novel combinations and the ability to optimize our our combinations um, versus toxicities. Um, So we wanted to highlight a couple of ongoing um, uh, data points and and also try Trials um, to, to help answer the sequencing question. Uh, so the first um, is uh, highlighting the data from Cosmic 021 that Monty uh, led uh, with Neuraj, um, and uh, we saw the data in both clear cell kidney cancer here on the left and in non-clear cell kidney cancer on the right. Um, Cosmic 021 is one of these basket studies using the combination of cabozantinib and atezolizumab in multiple disease settings, and I think has been really helpful in terms of defining patient populations 
patients where this combination might be effective. So we certainly saw um, a lot of disease control. So clear cell kidney cancer, um, uh, all but two of these patients um, had uh, decreases in their target lesions. And so based on uh, Cosmic 021, we now have an ongoing contact 03 study uh, that Monty uh, and his colleagues are, are PIing across the country um, and, and currently accruing, um, randomizing patients who have had prior um, IO-based uh, combinations to either atezolizumab with cabozantinib here at the 60 milligram dose or cabozantinib monotherapy. So building upon our known active co- um, treatments in the second setting. Um, you saw the data about belzudafen um, on its own. Um, here we're showing you data about belzudafen with cabozantinib um, and the um, uh, excellent disease control rate. Um, 86% per, uh, percent of patients had a reduction in it, uh, their targets. Um, the waterfall plot that you see here, so certainly um, an active combination. And there's an uh, ongoing phase three study um, taking patients um, with uh, uh, metastatic renal cell uh, and either randomized them to either belzudafen or everolimus in the refractory setting. Um, so uh, certainly also um, an interesting um, uh, treatment in, in terms of in the refractory setting and thinking about whether HIF2-alpha inhibition um, can help us salvage um, some responses. All right. Um, how about other checkpoint inhibitor pathways? So we're ha- talking about a lot about different mechanisms. Um, we've been seeing some really active data about um, targeting LAG3 um, in the refractory setting. We've seen some data come out in the melanoma space for the combination of nivolumab with relatlimab, um, which is a, a anti-LAG3 inhibitor. Um, there's an ongoing uh, fraction RCC trial that's uh, really looking at, uh, it's an umbrella trial that's looking at different uh, combinations um, building off of the uh, checkpoint inhibitor backbones. And so I think uh, once we see these different combinations and fraction readout, um, we'll have very interesting hypothesis generating um, uh, clinical data to take forward into um, uh, changing our standard of care. We had time in this program, which we usually don't, to really reflect on the forward-thinking landscape in renal cell carcinoma trials that are ongoing. One thing that we don't see is biomarker-based designs. We talk about it, you know, theoretically. Do you see that happening downstream, or is it a bit of a pipe dream? Well, I think there is already one that's uh, designed. I think uh, Brian Reaney is leading this, the OPTEC trial, where, you know, depending on the signature, patients get either NIVO-AP if they're in the... Uh, five, six, seven, you know, that seven signatures from the Emotion 151. And if they are in the first one or two signature angiogenesis-driven disease, they get, uh, you know, IOTKI. So I think that's, that's uh, one, um, one, you know, uh, option. But you're right. I think uh, a lot of what we need is uh, when we see a patient who is treatment naive, even later on after disease progression on first-line therapy, what uh, is driving the disease and what therapy can, should we select? I mean, I think this is still uh, an area of, of uh, a need, an unmet need, and we don't have that yet. Absolutely. And I think even Brian would concede it's more hypothesis generating. It's a small 60-patient right, trial, right. so it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. But, but an important effort, nonetheless. I, I totally agree. And Tian, you know, since we're, we're wrapping up right around the hour here, I'll close with my favorite question, which came from the audience here, which is, how do you treat papillary renal cell carcinoma? 
Uh, I, I think we take the PEPMET data and we really use that in papillary renal cell uh, setting, uh, Monty, and, and you led that trial in the cooperative groups. Um, we certainly treated a lot of patients on it. Uh, but showing improvement in terms of untreated papillary renal cell carcinoma, uh, improvement in uh, cabozantinib-treated patients versus sunitinib. Um, so certainly my go-to in the first line for papillary renal cell is cabozantinib. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XZJ860. This educational activity is supported through medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Exelixis Incorporated.